0: Today is the last installment of our sermon series, Yahweh's King. Now, um, it's part of our um, protocol that what would we do when we preach on series, we put in titles. And for the month of January until February, our title is Yahweh's King, emphasized in the first book of Samuel. Now, if you read the book of Samuel, We have emphasized from multiple texts, beginning from when we started the sermon series in January, how God revealed himself to the nation of Israel through a series of events. When God released them from the bondage in Egypt, when God allowed them to cross the Red Sea, when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, up to the time they crossed the Jordan River and entered the Promised Land, to the time of Eli and Samuel, there was one constant message in the book from beginning to Genesis up to, beginning to, uh, up to Samuel, it's that Yahweh is king. Yahweh is king means Yahweh alone is God and king, and not just in Israel, but also in the whole world. That's why in a Jewish prayer, they would always say, Melecha HaOlam, which means Yahweh is king, or king of the whole world. We emphasize the truth that Yahweh alone is king. Today I want to show you images and patterns so that when you see and when you read the Bible regardless of stories you will see a better way of understanding who God is and his will. Let me set this up for you. The book of Samuel begins with a very negative atmosphere. Unlike any traditional story it starts with, traditional story starts with once upon a time when you watch a movie You know, there's music, and there's a setup, there's building of momentum. But the book of Samuel begins with a very gloomy uh, setting and scenario, a very gloomy spiritual and political scenario. From the last book of Judges, it says, During those times, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If we are to perfectly appreciate the story and understand what this means, What this means is that politically, it means Israel was not a monarchy. They have no human king. There was no democracy. It was not dictatorship either. But Israel was a theocracy, which means Yahweh is their king. That means there's no congress that enacts the law. Yahweh gives the law. In fact, when you read the books of Moses, the first five books, they're full of laws that the nation of Israel must follow. People do not elect prophets and judges. They do not elect presidents. God chooses the prophet and the judge, and so they administer the rules of God. And everything they must do, they must do it in line with the will of God. But when you go to the book of Samuel, you will find there, again, during those times, there was no king, and everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. That means, at that time, the nation of Israel is breaking the law. The priesthood is corrupt. The people are totally divided. And no, we're not talking about America. That's a joke if you didn't get it. Now, spiritually, spiritually, they are like the prodigal son. They are in the middle, when you come up with the book of Samuel, they are in the middle of exploring gods and goddesses in Canaan. Now, in ancient days, there are many gods and goddesses in the land of Canaan. Not just in Canaan, but also Egypt, Mesopotamia, in Iran, in the, in the land of Persia. But Israel during this time is your average American who grew up in church, and when they came of age, they started exploring other religions. They, they began to search for things that, will, that have fascinated them for the longest time. What are the things that Americans are so fascinated with are yoga and reincarnation. Anyone delve in those things? Or you know of friends who have delved in those things? Yoga and reincarnation. This is what they call spirituality. So, Hollywood offers movies like Pimp, very subtle, very seductive, but they are like Trojan horses for promoting idolatry. Nothing more than idolatry. Case in point, 10 years ago, there was a movie titled Eat, Love, and Pray. See that? Julia Roberts. It's very, very cute movie. It's, it's, it, it's like a love story. But it's a story about finding your journey in life and finding your purpose in life. I know it, it feels good. This is a cute story. You know, All cute story is like that. But there's an embedded message behind it. This is like a kind of soda. It feels good, but it contains 10 teaspoons of sugar. Sugar is the leading cause of type 2 diabetes and heart attack. Nothing but a Trojan horse. The thing is, when I watch this, um, Eat, Pray, Love, Julia Roberts went to India to learn how to meditate. And when she got there, she moved to Bali, Indonesia. She met a palm reader, and, and in Bali, Indonesia, the palm reader told her her future. You know what the Bible calls that? The Bible calls that abomination. There's a portion in Deuteronomy that says they're not allowed to consult medium and diviners. Palm reading is divination. Israelites are not allowed to do this. Now, there's another story. Uh, This is very popular. Ten years ago as well, the first time I watched the cartoon Kung Fu Panda. This is cartoon. Kung Fu Panda. Anyone seen that? Yes? Kung Fu Panda. It's, It's fun. It's cartoon. But then when I watched it, Immediately, I knew something was wrong with it. I knew it was cartoon, and it should be fun, but if you seriously think about it, this is nothing more but the Trojan horse. There was a scene when this old master turtle, old turtle master, his name is Gwei, he was meditating, and he he was repeating this mantra, inner peace, inner peace. What does he mean by inner peace? What he meant by inner peace was... To be one with the universe. That is inner peace. Now, in Kung Fu Panda 2, he's already dead. And there's another master by the name of Shifu. By the way, Shifu is also the term for master. So he's a master, master. Master Shifu. And he was also meditating and he was doing the mantra. Inner peace. Inner peace. And then the big fat panda came and, and he asked, what's inner peace? And then Shifu said, it's about harnessing the flow of the universe. Whatever that means. Now, this is very interesting, to say the least. Because when you turn to pop culture, you'll find someone else, like Oprah Winfrey, who is one of the most celebrated, influential talk show hosts. Her, um, her show received 47 Emmy Awards. Her net worth is estimated to be $3.5 billion, with a B, billion. And in her interview with Larry King, she explained that in order for you to change your circumstances, you have to apply the law of attraction. What is it? You've got to think positive. You've got to attract all the positive vibes. You've got to harness the flow of the universe. I'm not making this up. You find it in YouTube. When people say that some, when What people say when something good happens to them is not, thank you, God, thank you for giving it to me. What people say when something good happens to them is that the universe has conspired to my desire. The stars have aligned. I have harnessed the flow of the universe, and therefore God is not involved in our peace. Are you still with me? That's exactly the opposite of what the story of Samuel would say. This is the exact opposite of what Yahweh demands from the people of Israel. What God demands from Israel is an exclusive kind of worship. See, the Bible explicitly asserts that there's only one God, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Yahweh alone is God. But the question is why? Why does God want to be exclusive in worship? Why does He demand exclusive worship? Why can't we just worship Yahweh and worship other gods and goddesses? Why must he be inclusive? Here's the, Here's the answer. When Israel went to battle, they used the ark as a lucky charm. They lost. And then the Philistines captured the ark. They put the ark inside the, the Dagon's temple, and then there was a plague. And then the ark was returned to Israel, and when the people of Israel saw the ark, they looked into it and, and treated God with contempt. At the very end of chapter 6, this was their question. After all those, those things, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20. And the men of Beth said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? This question is like saying, what makes God unique? Who is this God? Who can compete with God? What is the right way to worship Him? Now hold on to those questions. The next chapter answers the question after 20 years have passed. This is chapter 7 of the book of Samuel. In verse 3 it says, And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they serve the Lord only. This is kind of interesting. The people of Israel who have experienced all the power of God since the beginning from Egypt, and yet they are unfaithful to God. They have Baals and Ashtaroth. And when you say Baals, it's yes with S because it represents all the gods in Canaan, Baals and Ashtaroth. And so in chapter 7, they have to give up their unfaithfulness you know, when, when Oprah was trying to explain the harnessing the flow of the universe, and Larkin was, was really, he was listening to her. She explained that in order to change your circumstances, you've got you to apply the law of attraction. you got to think positive. I mean, what is this in regards to worshiping the Lord? What is this in regards to understanding that everything comes from the Lord? Now, we already know about Dagon. Dagon is a half-fish, half-god. Dagon was Baal's daddy. So there are two gods, main gods in the land of Canaan. Dagon, the half-fish, half-god. This is the real Aquaman, by the way. See, today, it's a DC character, but in the Old Testament, this guy is a deity. He's worship. This guy is the daddy of Baal. Now, let's talk about Baal. Baal means owner, husband, and lord. So there's a way also in the scriptures where wives call their husbands Baal because Baal means Lord. Lord simply means a, a title of respect. But Baal uses some titles that are worrisome. He's known to be the fertility god. His title includes Prince of the Earth. He's the Lord of Rain and Dew, which means he's a fertility god. Uh, he's also known as the god of the thunder, lightning, and storm. And there's this epithet about him. He's the god who rides on the clouds. Very interesting. You will find that in ancient writings about Sumer and Canaan. Baal is the god who rides on the clouds. Whatever that means, I will let you know. And in Canaanite mythology, there was a story about Baal. When Baal fought all the lesser gods in Canaan, He was elevated the position, and he was given a new title. His new title is the king of the gods, because he was the top dog in Canaan. Now, here's one of the rules of logical thinking, the rule of non-contradiction. There can only be one truth. If Baal is king, Yahweh is not. Are you following me? If Yahweh is king, Baal is not. Because there can only be one king in the entire world, either Baal or Yahweh. And the people of Israel must decide who is really king. But we know for a fact in the story of Samuel that Yahweh is king. Now, Yahweh has already proven that. When the ark was captured, it was put inside the temple of Dagon. And in the temple of Dagon, Yahweh decapitated the head of Dagon. He's proven that. The plague in Philistia and the plague in in Benchimus has proven that God really is the king. In fact, that's the reason why there was the last question at the end of chapter 6. Who is able to stand before the Lord? He has proven himself to be the king. And so for us who is reading the book of Samuel, the narrator seems to be telling us that the activities of God speak for themselves. It proves that Yahweh is king. So the nation of Israel gathered in one place upon realizing that Yahweh is king. They gathered in a place called Mizpah, but then the Philistines heard about it. You know, the last time the Philistines gathered was because of the battle. And the last time the Israelites gathered was because there was a battle formation. So the Philistines thought there was another battle formation. So they launched their spy balloon. And they decided it's not just a military exercise. This is real battle. And so this is the real deal. This is what it says in verse 7, 1 Samuel 7, 7 and 8. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. What's going on in here? Why were they afraid of the Philistines? See, the last time the Philistines went to battle uh, against Israel, they killed about 34,000 soldiers. That's scary. So there's reason for the Israelites to fear. And they were also able to capture the ark. But the reason they decided to do battle against the Israelites is because they never fully understood why they were able to kill 34,000 Israelites. In fact, the, the, the ark was there. They have not fully understood why they were able to capture the ark of the Most High God. And so they were thinking... Maybe we got lucky, and maybe if we go against the Israelites, we will again be lucky and win against the Israelites. They have no clue whatsoever. But what's more interesting was the reaction of the Israelites. The text says they were afraid of the Philistines. This is interesting. Why? Because during the last battle, when the Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant in their camp, They shouted, and the Philistines heard about it, and the Philistines were afraid. And they said, the God of the Israelites has come to the camp. They were afraid. It was the Philistines. But now it was the Israelites who were afraid of the Philistines. What's interesting about it is is this. The Israelites have the Ark of the Covenant. It's back. And if it's back, and if God is powerful, why are they afraid of the Philistines? Do you see the connection? This is very interesting do you know why they're afraid? Because they were not confident that God has fully returned to them. Because they were not confident that God has pardoned their sin. They were not confident because they knew for a fact that they have not fully given up their bales and Ashtaroth. They were hiding their sins. I think people who profess to follow Jesus should be afraid when they know for a fact that they have not given up their bales and Ashtaroth. I think people who profess to follow Jesus should be afraid when confronted by a spiritual enemy when they know for a fact that they have not fully surrendered everything to God. What do I mean by that? Now, I once had an encounter with demon possession. Now, you may think this is 21st century. We have to be scientific. These are not true. Demon possession is true because demons are real, just as angels are real. Are you still with me? I'm not trying to scare you right now. But there's a cave in Malaysia. I visited that place a long time ago. It's called the Batu Cave in Malaysia. And Hindu pilgrims would go there year after year during the Thaipusam. Thaipusam is the 10th full moon where the Hindus would pierce their bodies in honor of a local deity. And they would say that they are able to pierce their bodies without anesthesia, and the only explanation is that they are during that time possessed by a deity. They believe that during the sacred festival, they are possessed by a deity. Now, I know the images may be scary, but that's the whole idea behind it. Now, if you go to the Bible, we know for a fact that God does not possess any person. There's no record of it. We also know for a fact that angels do not possess a person. you know who possess a person? Demons, evil spirits, jinns. Ghosts. God never possesses a person. Angels never possess a person. Who possesses these people during the Thaiposam? I'm not sure if you're aware, but here in Southwest Ranches, a couple of miles away from here, there's a temple called Shiva Vishnu Temple. You're not going around. Shiva is the god of destruction. And if you think yoga and meditation has nothing to do with spirituality, think again. If you think that yoga is all about poses, think again. Shiva is the founder of yoga. He has a third eye, and his third eye is seeing the spiritual world. What this means is that when you practice Hindu yoga, your, op- your eyes will be open to the spiritual world. And when we talk about spiritual world, we're not talking about the world of God where you can see God or the angels. When Hindus talk about the spiritual world, they're talking about the world of demonic spirits. You know what? If there's anything, demon possession is real. Demons can wreak havoc in your life. Demons can disrupt your daily activities. They break relationships. Demons can attack even professing believers when they still have Baals and Ashtoreth in their lives. Let me explain why it took Israel this long to give up their worship of Baals and Ashtaroth. Although they have fully committed themselves to God in Mount Sinai, although they have the Ten Commandments, although they have the law, although they knew Yahweh, but they still have Baal and Ashtoreth, why? Why was it so hard to give up the Baals and Ashtoreth? And you might think, why should I care? There's no Baals and Ashtoreth right now. And you may say, Pastor, my main concern is my deadline next week. Okay, I think you should care. You should care for the fact that in Samuel's day, it's true. And I would say Baal worship is still true today. It's all around us. It exists here, even in America. You see, you see it, but you may not recognize it. And the bad news is that you might be involved in Baal worship. Let me show you. Let me say this: the Baal worship is fundamentally an economic issue. He is known to be the god who rides on the clouds. They believe that. When Baal comes in the clouds, he brings in rain, which is good for farming. And so the Israelites believe that Baal promises a bountiful harvest. That's why they take in Baal as part of their pantheon of gods. See, Baal is like an insurance policy. What that means is that they still go to church, they still give their tithes, they still pray, but they add Baal into the gods so that they will guarantee a good harvest next year. That's the whole idea behind this idolatry. Baal worship is practical, convenient and exciting. It is exciting because it involves the ritual of sex. It is practical and convenient because Baal worship can be found in every corner in Canaan. Baal image can be in all shapes and size and forms. Compared to Yahweh, you can only worship Yahweh where the Ark of the Covenant is. And the Ark of the Covenant is covered. You cannot see God. It's hard to worship Yahweh compared to Baal. Yahweh has no shape or form or colors. See, for the people of Israel, worship of Baal is fundamentally an economic issue. Now, what that means is that anything that I devote to Invest in, trust my future with, my security, my convenience, anything that I give my whole heart, whole soul, whole mind, is Baal worship. You don't need an image to worship Baal. You don't need an image to worship Baal because true worship is a matter of the heart, the mind, and the soul. And if you're not worshiping God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, then you're worshiping something else. Think about this. Let me ask you this series of questions. Why do you need to trust God for your health when you have a very good medical insurance policy? Why do you need to trust God for your love life when you can easily go to Tinder or Bumble or Hinge and find a date? why do you need to trust god for your financial security when you have a very good credit score and 401k if all these things are are already covered and secure why do you have to go to church why do you have to pray what is the need for god what else do you need to trust god for in your life israel realized their need for god they were in trouble so they gathered for national prayer and fasting And this was the perfect time when Yahweh tested their sincerity because Yahweh allowed the Philistines to go to battle against the Israelites. In verse 10 it says, As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. Now, there are many ways God can defeat the Philistines, but the narrator used the phrase, thundered with a mighty sound. What does this even mean? The commentators say that it's a combination of a loud thunder and lightnings. It's really scary. You will panic when you see this. See, here's the thing. We said that Baal is the God who rides on the clouds, correct? If Baal is the God who rides on the clouds, the question is, where was he when God thundered from heaven? Where was Baal when God thundered and confused the enemy? Where was he? There's nowhere to be found. It only shows one indisputable thing. Baal is not because Yahweh is king. I show something cool. I know you've heard the story of Exodus many times, but you may not have seen it like this. You know, After Pharaoh let the people go, he realized he made a huge mistake by letting the people go. He realized we're going to have to go in a very deep recession because they released all the slaves, the greatest asset. So he commanded all the military to go after the fleeing Israelites. What happened was, When they were about to catch up with the Israelites, Moses prayed and the sea was divided into two. And the Israelites went through the Red Sea on dry land. But the whole Egyptian army also followed them. This is what it says in Exodus 14, verse 23. It says, The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen, And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, hang on, let let me read that again. In the morning watch, that's about 4 a.m., the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud. What this means is that Baal is not the Lord that rides on the clouds, Yahweh is behind the fire and the cloud. Are you reading this? Lord, in the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down on the Egyptians and threw the Egyptian forces in panic. How did God do that? Let me refer you back to 1 Samuel. Same thing that he did to the Philistines. Samuel 7, verse 10. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. Same thing. Confusion, panic. How did God do that? Thundered. Lightning, thunder. You see, it's a Baal. Baal is not the God of thunder and storm. He's not the God who rides clouds. Yahweh is. This was a clear demonstration for the Israelites that Yahweh is. See, whether in Egypt or in Canaan, Yahweh is the God who rides on the clouds. He's the real God of the storm. Yahweh is the God of the wind and the sea. And if that is true, then Baal is nothing but a copycat. It's nothing but a god made in the People's Republic of China. Yahweh is the real deal. Yahweh is king. I want to fast forward to the New Testament. Fast forward New Testament. The disciples were in the boat in the middle of the sea, and there rose a huge and terrible storm. You know the story about this one. They were in the boat, very calm. There were about four fishermen in the boat. Others were not fishermen. But then there was a terrible storm, and they started panicking. If you can imagine it, calm and then storm, strong winds and waves, probably ten to twenty feet high. It it will really make you panic. All they have were paddles and sails, so they panicked. And you know, and you know, it doesn't matter who started the storm. What's important here is how to stop the storm. I mean, their lives are are in trouble. Who has the power to stop the storm? And they look at each other and said, the boat is sinking, group yourselves in... No, no, they did not say that. No, they did not say that. You know what they said? Mark chapter 4, verse 38. They woke him and said, pertaining to Jesus, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Teacher, do you not care that we are perished? This is a rhetorical question. Of course Jesus cares. Do you believe that Jesus cares? Amen? Of course Jesus cares. In fact, they have witnessed many miracles of Jesus on land, but not yet on the sea. How much more in the middle of the storm? This is way different. So here's the problem. See, I think Christians can easily trust God About their afterlife. If you you asked any Christian, you would say, I'm secure about my afterlife. But what about this life? What about my love life? And Christians would say, That's different. I've got to make some moves. I mean, I can't wait for God to give me that. Sabin ng iba dibaling guapo, basta mayaman. I'm not sure about that. And you might be asking the same thing. Jesus, do you not care that I'm already 30 and I'm single? I'm not talking about Precious, okay? Cool. Okay? That's not true, Precious. You're not 30, okay? They, they asked a very serious question. Jesus, do you not care? Do you not care that I've been looking for a job for a couple months now? Do you not care that I have family issues? Do you not care I have a serious medical condition? If you care, Jesus, why are you sleeping? Jesus was sleeping on the boat. I mean, there were storms and wind. Jesus was sleeping on the boat. Can you imagine this? And they were asking a very serious question, Jesus, if you care, why are you sleeping? You see, I think we are drowning with images of waves and storms. But we failed to ask why Jesus himself was sleeping in the middle of the storm. Why was Jesus sleeping in the middle of the storm? Think about this. If Jesus himself was not worried about the storm, why should you? Is that a fair question? If Jesus himself was not worried about the storm, why should you? If Jesus himself can sleep through the storms, why can't you? I think perhaps it's the only through the storm where Jesus can finally make us understand who he really is and what he is capable to do. Perhaps only through the storm where Jesus can show his disciples he is his father's son. Perhaps only through the storms Jesus can show his disciples he's not just a man, he's more than a man. Because what happened next was short of another revelation of himself. Yahweh is king, as Jesus is king. And so what happened during the storm was they woke up Jesus and they said, Jesus, do you not care? Jesus stood up, commanded the wind, the storm, and the sea to calm down. You see, the disciples are not ignorant Jews. They know the story of Exodus. They knew that Yahweh has the only one who has power over the wind, the sea, and the storm. So when Jesus rebuked the wind, the sea, and the storm, they were thrown off. Everything they knew about God was put into question. So they asked in Matthew 8:27, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? It's the same question that the Israelites had with Yahweh. What is this God, this holy God? Same question that they have with Jesus. Who is this man? What sort of man is this? You know what they were asking? They were asking because if Yahweh demands exclusive worship because he commands the wind, the sea, and the storm, then who is this Jesus who also has the power to command the sea, the wind, and the storm? You know, Jesus answered this question. What sort of man is this? He answered this. You remember when he was put onto trial and the high priest asked him, Are you the Son of God? We're confused. It's been three years we've been doing all these things we're confused. Are you the Son of God? This is what Jesus said in Matthew 26, 64. Jesus said, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Baal is not the God who rides the clouds. Jesus is. Are you looking at this? You see, Baal is not the God who rides the clouds. Baal is not the God of the heavens. Jesus is. The reason why Jesus can command the wind, to see and the storm was because Yahweh can command the wind, to see and the storm. Yahweh has finally revealed Himself in the flesh, not veiled by another curtain. In the flesh through Jesus Christ's own Son. Jesus has authority to command the wind, the sea, and the storm. And if Jesus has authority to command the sea, the wind, and the storm, then He is within His rights to command you to worship Him alone. If He has authority to command the wind, the sea, and the storm, then Jesus' every right to ask for your allegiance. This is the reason why thousands and ten upon thousands of believers died in the first century during the persecution because they would rather die than betray their faith in Jesus Christ. They understood what it means to say Yahweh is King, Jesus is King. And if you're still asking what sort of God is Jesus, What sort of God is He? Know this. Jesus is the God who cares. Why would I say that? Because He cares enough that He offered His life in exchange for yours. He cares so much that He would rather be crucified on the wooden cross instead of you. He cares so much that He endured all the ridicule and the shame and the betrayal instead of you. And not only that, He rose from the dead after three days to prove that He has power over death so that you won't have to do it. He cares so much that He invites you. He reminds you. He asks you, just like the prodigal son, come home. Jesus cares. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, today we proclaim that there's only one king. It is Yahweh who's king. That Yahweh has sent his son, his only son, the son that he loved so much because he loved us too. And he has this invitation for us. Father, we proclaim our allegiance only to you. We proclaim that we will follow you With all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, there is only one king that we will devote to, not Baal, not money, not greed, not of anything in this world, but only Jesus. And though we may need things in our lives, we believe that you, God, are a way maker. If you have given up your son for us, you will not... Stop giving us the things that we need. In fact, you promise that if we seek your kingdom, if we seek you first, and you will supply all our needs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.